Hello. Welcome back to the Red Fern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today we're joined by academic Rima Ferris, and she's going to talk to us about her research about women in reading. And she's also going to share with us a popular historical novel that I think you'll really enjoy. But before we get to Rima, I wanted to talk with you about a couple of things that I'm reading and listening to right now. The first thing I wanted to mention is a newsletter that I get in, emailed to me each week. And it's called The Sunday Paper with Maria Shriver. And this is billed as a modern digital paper. And one of the taglines is, rise above the noise. It has heavy Oprah vibes, and it's definitely a newsletter focused around health, wellness, personal growth. And she also will take uh, topical events and put them into context, or maybe explore reactions that we might be having around the events, and try and put us at ease. And they've, it's been so popular that they've added a Wednesday edition as well. So check that out. And the second thing I wanted to mention is a brand new podcast from Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue called Double Date. My friend Sherry just told me about this. And what it is, it's a brand new podcast. And this um, long-term couple, Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue, have been together for over 40 years. They sit down with a series of celebrity couples and talk about what's worked in their relationship and what hasn't. And the idea is they're on a double date. They sit down and have a give-and-take conversation. And I've just listened to the first episode, and it's with Viola Davis and her husband, Julius. And what I like about it is you get to hear from people like Viola, but you also, Marlo and Phil very much talk about the pitfalls and um, things that have worked and not worked in their own relationship. So you really feel kind of like a fly on the wall. Plus, any chance to hear Marlo's um, gravelly voice and just Phil Donahue's questions. Um, he's kind of um, the original great interviewer. So that's nice. Anyway, that's what I have to say right now. And we're going to move over and hear from Rima. Hello, Rima. It's good to see you today. Nice to see you. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. So I wanted to introduce Rima Ferris. She is a PhD student from the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby. And I've brought her here today because the focus of her research is on women and reading. And so we had a chat, and she's going to give us a little bit of information about her research. We're going to make sure that it's, um, it's translated so us non-academics can understand it. And she's going to fill us in a little bit on that. And then she selected a book that she thinks really fits with the times right now. And um, she's going to elaborate. And then at the end, she's going to give us a, a, a fun um, historical novel that she's reading. So to start, uh, Rima holds an MA in Graduate Liberal Studies from SFU. She holds a BA in History and Classical Studies from the University of British Columbia and an MBA from the University of Toronto. I wanted to start with 
the why, uh, what, what is kind of unique about why women read? So it's, it's really interesting when you kind of get into the history of women in reading. Uh, I never realized that it was such a, a trope or an established idea or a cliche or whatever term you want to use. But women in reading have been the focus of society's interest for a very long time. And I think if you uh, think of reading as knowledge and as power, the relationship between knowledge and power, you realize why women who have traditionally sort of been on the margins outside of the power center, why there was so much intrigue in what they were reading and why they were reading. So um, if we look at sort of the historical foundations of it, uh, reading was originally really tied into religion, especially in Western Europe with the idea of Christianity. And where it got complicated is when the Bible started to be issued in the vernacular and women started to read the Bible for themselves, people got very concerned. Yes. <laughs> because, oh my goodness. Um, so um, why women read is complicated. There's always the, the basics of it, which is becoming literate or being able to function in a society that was becoming increasingly focused on print. So there's the just learning to read aspect. Then there's the learning aspect. Then there's the imagination aspect. And then there's the using what you learn to ask for different or for more. And that's why I think um, there's been, again, many attempts to control or manage what women read and how they read. Because if someone reads and then says, oh, so I don't have to do this, I could do this. Oh, isn't that interesting? There's all of a sudden a challenge to the way that things are organized. And for women who over centuries have been told you need to do this, you need to be this, if they start to question that, that, that uh, you know, can upset the apple cart. I'm going to guess, go out on a limb, that last point is really your interest based on your, uh, th- what you're studying currently. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's where I'm heading, yeah. yeah I definitely am intrigued with um, the connection between reading and change. So we can look at change on a couple of different levels. There's obviously the personal change, but I'm not interested in self-help aside from critiquing self-help <laughs> because right. self-help is so invested in the notion that you're a broken person and you have to fix yourself. Right. So it gets very complicated very quickly. Um, but the idea that what we read helps us shape a sense of who we are and then the way we want to be in the world. And then with the potential to the next step, which is to, if we don't like what we see in the world to change it, to make it better, not just for ourselves, for others. And so, yeah, that connection, I think, is, the, is to me the most interesting. Now, talk to me a little bit about book clubs, because you, you, I've read your research, and you, you talk a bit about this. And I know a lot of our listeners are members of book clubs, and talk about that form of connection and community, which right. we can't really all... I'm in a book club, and we sometimes do a Zoom thing, and it's not the same, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I've heard. I was actually... I, I, I met up with a friend of mine yesterday who, who is 95 years old yeah. and uh, is a member of a book club. They've been going for about 14 years, and uh, she said the exact same thing you just said, Amy. She said, uh, you know, we're trying the Zoom thing, but it's just not the same. Yeah. Um, 
Book, book clubs have been a traditional way for women to get together to talk about what they've been reading. And there's a really long history of women gathering to talk about what they read. In our more contemporary times, there was a there's a book by a woman named Elizabeth Long, and she was one of the first to study book clubs and what they meant in reality versus what um, academics thought they meant. And um, book clubs are a space where women can gather and share the experience, their life experiences as reflected through text. So book clubs serve a lot of different purposes, but fundamentally it's about that connection. Uh, the interesting thing about book clubs is they're maybe not always as egalitarian as the people who are in book clubs like to think they are. So people okay, tell me are, more about that. <laughs> <laughs> so people who are in book clubs like to think, oh, we're really diverse. But what Elizabeth Long's study showed is that, in fact, the diversity within book clubs may not be as great as people think they are. And that sometimes when book, when women gather in book clubs, uh, there can be people who are hesitant to speak out or people leave uh, because they don't feel welcome. They don't feel like they fit in. Right. So it's a very interesting tension as a place where women can gather to connect. Right. But it does bring in um, there. There are, let's say, power dynamics that work even within book clubs. So uh, it's interesting how that operates, both as a welcoming space, but also with the potential to be a little bit exclusionary. And some of the studies in academia of women readers argues that the reason reading plays such a big role in identity formation is that women identify with the characters, right? So they mm -hmm. identify and they're able to see their stories reflected. And that's why it's been so important for women to um, uh, uh, gain prominence in the public sphere as authors, because they can speak to women's experiences, right? So they are writing from what they know. And so that sense of identification is there. However, and in academia, we do this all the time, right? That's the identification. There's also the potential for people not to see themselves reflected. And that's why it's so important to make sure that diverse voices are published, printed, and distributed so that people can see life from many different perspectives and not just, it's not just about identification with characters that look or sound or are similar to us. It's also about understanding the real lives of other people and being able to develop an empathy or a connection there um, and see it as a path to learning as well. Now, another part of your research, you talk about um, how, I, guess, I don't think it's just women, but people rely on uh, a book culture to make decisions when finding books and they find it, it saves time. And then it's also, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So it's really, uh, really an interesting phenomena. So for those of us who are old enough to remember when Oprah Winfrey was king of, uh, the, sorry, king, <laughs> queen of uh, daytime television, one of the things she did is introduce the Oprah book club. Right. And that Oprah book club has been studied, again, from a number of different scholars and their different views on what it accomplished. But she did actually have a profound impact in publishing at the time. So the books that she recommended did become bestsellers. So people would rely on an Oprah title to help them find books to read with a sense of a bigger purpose. Again, it wasn't just about 
um, and there's nothing wrong with reading for enjoyment, but Oprah was very much about using reading as a stepping stone to learning and learning about things we might not know about or, or the, the, the topics that we find difficult to talk about. So Oprah was um, in, in the history of book culture is one of those um, uh, points that scholars focus on because it changed reading significantly. It became a way for people to find titles to read and also to share. Okay, so let's move over and talk about um, the book that you're recommending. And you have promised me, we had a little discussion about this ahead of time. This is an academic book. And um, at first I was like, okay, I need to know a little bit more about this. But you've, you've described it to me as a, a book about history, memory, and families, but it's not a downer. So I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'm, I, and so tell, great. Thank you. So tell, tell me about the book you recommended and, and why. Sure. Uh, so the book's title is What the Oceans Remember, Searching for Belonging and Home. It's written by Sonia Boone, who's a professor at the um, Memorial University in Newfoundland. Um, and Sonia was the first PhD um, recipient from our department at SFU, from the Department of Gender, uh, Sexuality and Women's Studies, or GSWS for short. And the whole way that I found out about this book was because in celebrating our 50th anniversary, there was an event organized with Sonia and the department asked me to be the interviewer. So I helped to moderate a book club for six weeks as we read this book and then had the great the opportunity to interview Sonia, who's fantastic. She's wonderful. I was so happy to meet her and so happy to get into this book. It's issued from the Wilfrid Laurier University Press Life Writing Series. And so if you're interested in memoir and uh, life writing, um, th there's a whole backlist there to explore. Um, so Sonia's father is Dutch and her mother is from Suriname, a very mixed heritage. And one of her cousins had this idea to do a family tree. So Sonia, whose previous academic work involved digging around in archives, thought this would be a great opportunity. Uh, but she learned a lot along the way. So the book is her voyage into finding out about her family, but it raises questions about uh, uh, history, family history, why it's important to us. It raises questions about archives and how archives work. Um, it raises questions about belonging, our need for belonging. And um, it's all written in a very... Uh, musical style because before she returned to academia, Sonia was a professional musician. I find that really uh, amazing. And her so writing is, is that so kind of lyrical or how, yeah, how, how does that lyrical. play out? Yeah, very. So some of her passages, the way she describes things, she puts you right in the moment, but there's also a rhythm to it, like like a musical rhythm almost. Okay. Um, so in the book, you go to the Netherlands, you go to Suriname, but you go back in time to the history of slavery, which is a part of Sonia's uh, ancestry. Mm -hmm. And she starts the book with an epigram by uh, Laurette Edith Savoy, and this is the epigram. The past is remembered and told by desire. And I love that because it makes you think, okay, if I'm spending time to remember the past, whose desire am I expressing? And so part of what Sonia discovers 
is that she was trying that she wanted certain things from history and some she found and some she didn't find. And for someone who was familiar with archives, uh, she was awfully surprised by what she discovered through this quest, through this journey. Did she have, I mean, we all have family stories. Did she have sort of a version of her, of her life and then find it was maybe not quite what she thought? Or Yes. And I won't, I won't go, go into spoilers, but I, I think um, for Sonia, she was looking to go into the archives to come out with answers. And what she found is that she ended up with more questions. She also found that portions of her family history are only uh, evident in fragments. So the question becomes, when you only have access to fragments, how do you put that together? And so she talks about not a singular past, but multiple pasts, because she talks about her great, I think it's great, great grandmother, who came from India as an endangered servant with a young son all the way to Suriname. And there's very little information that she was able to find. And so she imagines all sorts of different pasts for her uh, relative. Okay. She, she doesn't know, there's no way for her to know which one of those may be true, more true. She can only speculate. So she had to find a level of comfort in letting some of her desire to make the past whole, to let that go. Is, there an, ex- is there an extra level being an academic as well? Because I, my stereotype is that, well, that you need a little bit of control, that you look for the actual absolute fact. Is that Probably. a little bit? Yeah, especially as someone, like, again, her previous research had involved archival work. Mm. So she's very familiar with archives and how they work. And some of her descriptions of the magic of being in the archives and connecting with the past is, is wonderful, right? But she was not prepared for what the, her experience with the archives in this situation was going to be. So uh, she was surprised. <laughs> and okay. it's just lovely to read because there's kind of like this journey of unfolding and discovery and then having to come back with new understandings. But as I said, the biggest lesson, and I think, um, you know, I love history. I've always loved history. And similar to you, there are certain family stories that we cling on to because they're told to us over and over again. And there are other stories or other parts of our history that we may no longer have access to. So um, how do we have comfort with that if what drives us forward is a desire, back to that idea of desire, a desire to know who we are and where we're from. And if we don't have categorical answers for those, um, how do we deal with that? It reminds me, I was thinking, and I just looked it up, there's a a show on I don't know what channel it is on Canada I think it might be PBS in the States but who do you think you are have you seen that yes I I love that show that's a great show and actually that kind of combines the whole celebrity thing which we talked about earlier right and um there's always there's always some really fascinating story and the other thing that I like about that show is 
it's usually many, many generations removed that whatever the big event happened, like the war or someone was a servant. And it's very emotional. Uh, often the, the person breaks down in tears to hear the journey of this person, their great, 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 great grandfather. And I find that really fascinating. Yeah, it is. And for, for Sonia, part of her family legacy is tied to slavery. So mm-hmm. she has to come face to face with the reality of her ancestors um, uh, being captured and being brought into uh, what was at the time Dutch Guiana, now Suriname. And um, there's one segment, one of the most moving segments in the book for me, there's about three pages. She's looking at the plantations in Suriname kept ledgers with the list of the slaves in the ledgers. And she finds the ledgers from Sarah Plantation, which is where her, her ancestors were uh, lived, where her ancestors lived and, and were enslaved. And she takes like three pages of this book to list all the names. And when I was reading um. the book, I, I, I started to skim because I said, oh, it's just a list. Of, it's a list of names, right? Just right. the list of names. And I stopped myself and I said, no. And I went right back and I started and I read every single name wow. because I felt that was a way of acknowledging these people who had lived and suffered, but also had lives and probably laughed and loved and in these very difficult circumstances, right? But I felt it was so important to go and read each of the names. And I asked Sonia about that when we had our author event, and she said there was a reading that she did, and she chose to read just that section. So her reading oh. of the was reading out the names of each of the each of the, the, the people that she's listed in the book. And <laughs> That that to me is so powerful. Have you seen the? Have you been to Washington D.C. and seen the Vietnam Memorial? Have you seen that? No, no, I've I've never been to Washington. Um, so I went. I've been a few times, but I the first time I saw the Vietnam War Memorial, which I'm sure you know about, which is the names, just right. the names. And I, I forget, but I believe it starts kind of high and then gets smaller as you go along. But I could not believe, I broke down in tears just seeing the names. Right. And I do not have, I am American, so I have that connection with um, the feelings about the war. But I don't really, in that I don't know anybody directly, right. it just was so powerful just to see the names. Because I. it was what you said, just thinking of these people and, and many of them that went didn't have power themselves. That's why they went. Absolutely. And, and then you see those names and it, wow, that sounds Right. There's powerful. actually, so in, uh, in academia, in my field, there's a concept called intersectionality. And mm-hmm. the originator of that term is Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a legal scholar uh, uh, from the U.S. And there's a TED Talk. So if you just, if you Google, you know, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, Um, intersectionality TED Talk, it'll come up. And it's an incredible presentation around um, police violence in the U.S., but against Black women. And it focuses in on the campaign of Say Her Name. So this tendency we have to try and um, obscure the reality of victims, 
because it makes it the rest of it, it makes life sort of more comfortable for the rest of us to kind of um, obscure or not look at the face of violence straight on. That's why all these campaigns around say her name or listing names or recognizing names, uh, as you've described in the memorial, is so powerful because it takes the anonymity of victimhood and makes it real. It makes it about a real person who had a real life, uh, who had a life, who had joys and sorrows, and, uh, and, and it makes us say what happened to them is not fair, it's not just... And let's see how we can change that. And that brings us back to the idea where reading can be a path to um, discovering where these inequities and injustices are and what we need to do to make the world different and better. Uh, You mentioned, uh, casually mentioned a a book that you're reading right now or that you've just finished. And I think it's going to... be an interest to a lot of people. I have anecdotally, and even myself, my friend Allison will be laughing if she hears this or when she hears this, because I do tend to like historical fiction. Uh, um, but tell me um, the book that you were Right, I just finished. Uh, it's called The Paris Library. And for those who know me, they know I bought the book because it has two of my favorite things in the title, <laughs> Paris <laughs> and Libraries. Okay. So I knew nothing about the book. And I was, I don't know why I was in... Um, uh, local bookstore and I saw it and I said oh Paris library I'm buying that the author is Janet Skisleen I'm guessing on that pronunciation Charles and it's uh, about the American library in Paris which I knew nothing about so it is historical fiction based on real people and um, uh, uh, a real place and it's set in World War II Paris as well as early 1980s Montana. And I'll leave it for your listeners if they decide to read the book to to understand how Paris and Montana become connected. Okay. (laughs) But it is about, again, it's about uh, going back to our idea of community. So the American Library in Paris is a place of community and the characters and the people that live there. And so during the Second World War, with Paris under occupation, it, it was it stayed open. And it were it was it, it, the librarians who made every effort to stay open. Uh, but it talks about what life was like in Paris under the occupation. It talks about the importance of books. It talks about the way we build community through 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 books. And the modern part of the uh, book, which is set in Montana, has to do with the the main character connecting with a young woman and, again, developing a relationship that is based on books and how books can help and guide us through life's tough times. But it's not books alone, again, right? It's, It's the power of books as we engage with the text and engage with each other around the text. That's beautiful. That's a great way to conclude. Um, Rima, I wanted to thank you so much for joining joining me today. That was a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. This was fun. I'm, I'm always happy to talk. Great. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much to Rima for joining us today. And I will have all the details about the books and resources mentioned in the show notes. And I wanted to encourage you to join me next week 
I'm going to be joined by book blogger Susan Matheson from Bedside Table Books, and we're going to get together and do a preview of Spring Books. So look forward to seeing you then. Talk to you later.